0: Listening to Shoot It Now, your weekly podcast about indie filmmaking and big budget films, with award
1: winning filmmaker Craig Newland. And welcome to another Shoot It Now podcast. I'm joined by a writer director with three different films behind him. His latest film stars Casey Affleck and Michelle Monaghan. Vaughn Stein, welcome to Shoot It Now.
0: Hi, thank you very much for having me.
1: I was looking back at your filmography and saw that early in your career, you've done a lot of second and third assistant directing on some pretty big productions, including World War Z, Beauty and the Beast, The Danish Girl, The Fifth Estate, Pirates of the Caribbean, and others. I want to ask you first off, how much did being on a Bigger production like that shape influence and inform you as a director leading into his first feature film.
0: It was invaluable. It was, it was invaluable. I, I mean, it was hugely important to me. Sort of working, working my way up as an assistant director and and learning, learning the ropes. You know, learning how film sets work, learning, learning how crews interact, learning, you know, learning from the ground up. And I and I was very very blessed. I I got very lucky when I finished uh, when I finished at university. I I'd already done bits and bobs of work experience, and I started working as a runner. And the first thing I got offered was what I thought was a romantic comedy because I, I was sent a call sheet for something called Rory's First Kiss which turned out to be the working title for the London, well, for the Dark knights uh, So my first days on set after finishing university was, was locking off in central London while we were doing all the Gotham City Police Department stuff. So I was completely hooked from then on. And yeah, I think for me, um, you know, learning, learning how to do it from the ground up, learning, being able to watch incredible, incredible directors, and DPs and actors work, watch the way they interact and, and, you know, to be part of that process, it, it was an honor and it was invaluable to me. And, and it's really stood me in good stead, sort of, you know, moving into what was always my dream to to write and direct.
1: And did you go to film school?
0: No, I went to university. I went to Bristol, University of Bristol and I studied film, theatre and television. And for a long time, sort of through my teens, I, I was sort of very passionate about theatre. I, I, I couldn't really decide if I was going to if I was going to sort of follow which route I was going to follow, the, the theatrical or the filmic route. So I think for me I really fell in love, in love with films sort of around fifteen, sixteen. And my my school I had a film club and we we had some amazing teachers who sort of just put some really, really, you know, brilliant and challenging films in front of me at that sort of, you know, you know, that seminal age of sort of 15, 16, 17, when you start to really, you know, mould your creative sensibilities. And yeah, I, I think for me, by the time I got to university and I, I started to specialise in film, but in terms of practical filmmaking, no. I, I, my, my experience started when I started making tea and coffee on big film sets and worked my way up from there, really.
1: It is such a education when you are with a very high bar of filmmaking. Of course, it's going to wash through you. Of course, you're going to take on board uh, all these little idiosyncrasies that people are doing, directors are doing, what is probably some of the bigger points, the bigger takeaway from working on set on these big productions that you found were really key and instrumental in you gaining the confidence to go on and shoot your first feature?
0: Well, that's a good question. I, th- I think for me, there were there were sort of two disparate elements to it. The, the first was, I was very fortunate to be working as an assistant director because I, I'm not sure how much detail you want to go into, but the assistant directors are a department within the film industry who ostensibly project manage a film. Their job is to assist the director in fulfilling his creative vision. So we look after, you know, sort of all the human elements of a film. We look after, you know, the cast, the crowd, stunts, and, and we also run the film day to day. Assistant directors are, are responsible for creating a schedule that the film revolves around and, and they get shot So for me, being able to work sort of cheek by jowl with some unbelievable directors and and watching, you know, sort of watching the way they interact with cast, watching the way they interact with crew, the way they run their set, the way they communicate their ideas, the way they bring forward, you know, the the ideas that they work on in in prep to execute on set. that That was hugely important to me. But then I think the other element for me that I that I loved was being involved with the crew as a whole, being sort of involved in the in the practical day to day of, you know, I was very very lucky to work on, you know, I've worked at all levels of the film industry from tiny independent things to huge studio movies, and to be able to, you know, do these amazing chase sequences or you know choreographed fights or explosions or you know whatever it's 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 incredibly exciting and yeah I, I sort of really love being at the cold face so yeah the for me you know being able to work so closely with directors and then also to see that all the bells and whistles of you know a hollywood movie was very very important to me
1: so working as an assistant director it's about managing people and if you can do that on a big production, it does lend itself a long way down the rabbit hole of being able to do that on your first feature. In terms of managing people, managing all sorts of different things that are going to be coming through you as the director, so that in itself is probably just a huge takeaway.
0: Yeah, yeah, you couldn't put it better. Really, it is. It's learning at the top end, you know, at, at the sharp end of filmmaking from the best and the brightest, and. And trying to apply that, you know, in everything that I do, learning those lessons, you know, on a, on a practical level as an assistant director, and then applying them as as a director. And yeah, for, for me, like that's what I excelled at. I think as an assistant director, I think I'm a pretty good communicator, and I found because I was passionate about making films, and also, you know, I I really wanted to help make them as good as as good as they could be. That zest for it, I think, really trickles into my. Directing, well, I hope it
1: does. And when I say that you're working on these big productions as an assistant director, it's it's only a few years ago that Beauty and the Beast was out there. You were on the set uh, before suddenly you're helming your first film terminal in 2018 with some pretty big names here, including Margot Robbie, Simon Pegg, and Mike Myers, who I didn't recognise, although that's his specialty to make you look twice. You were the writer and the director of Terminal. Tell us how you were able to, as a first-time filmmaker, able to not only sell the script and the concept, but also be attached to direct this film.
0: To be honest with you, Craig, it came about the way a lot of these things do, you know, like pure dumb luck, really. Um, Tom Ackerley and Josie McNamara, who are astonishing producers now and, and very close friends of mine, we... We were all runners and assistant directors together. We all came up together. And um, I'd, been, uh, I'd been working with them. I knew they wanted to produce. Uh, they knew I wanted to direct, and we, we wanted to work together. And Tom and Josie went off to work on a film called Sweet Francaise, which starred one Margot Robbie. And they became very firm friends, and through them I met Margs. We hit it off uh, and became good friends. And a terminal at that point uh, had been exhaustively written and rewritten. It had been in development for a variety of companies. Uh, Tom and Josie had it and really liked it and wanted to, wanted to take it forward. They'd, they'd set up a burgeoning production company. At the time, they were living in a flat share in Clapham with Margs and about six or seven other people. And Margs read the script and she loved it. And we met two weeks after that and and it sort of went from there. And look, you know, like independent film is, is built around passion It's built around good scripts and and great actors uh, wanting to tell stories, you know, and, you know, when they lend their cachet to a project, you know, when Marx became involved, uh, you know, to both star in it and to produce it, you know, that galvanized the project. uh, And that was in sort of late 2015. And we took it to the EFM in Berlin, Marx and I with the sales agents and producers, and we, we shot uh, summer of 2016. Yeah, so it all, it all sort of came together from, a, yeah, a mixture of, of a lot of hard work and pure dumb luck, really, to be honest.
1: So you've got Margot Robbie, you've got Simon Pegg. You then have to raise the the money aspect. Just talk, especially for our indie filmmakers who are always curious as to how the money comes in. Just talk to that. I know that you've got producers that are working Their Magic obviously helps with Margot Robbie. Although, how much had she done at this stage in terms of her career when she came on board with your project,
0: so Margs had broken out with Wolf. She had shot Suicide Squad, but it hadn't come out, and she'd also shot Tarzan, but I don't think that'd come out either. So, you know, she she was very very much on the rise. It's a tricky one. Like independent financing is, it's a minefield, isn't it? As I, as I'm as I'm sure you and all your listeners know, it's 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 very hard and. Um, you know, look, we we were we were very blessed as a project with having Marg's attachment that gave us the the sort of kudos, you know, to, to really take it out to market. And of course, you know, film markets are exactly that. They're film markets. The, you know, the international sales model is is based on pre selling the film to various territories in order to raise the finance to make the film, and that finance is predicated on the level of your cast. So, who uh, was I think it was I think it was Mike who came on next. I'm a massive, massive, (laughs) excuse me, Mike Myers fan. I mean, he was a huge sort of fixture of of my adolescence, as I'm sure he was for a lot of people in terms of Wayne's World and Austin Powers. And, you know, we sort of, we, we took a pot shot. You know, Mike, he writes a lot and he does a lot of his own stuff, but he, he's very, very selective. I think we sent him the script, and about a week later, I got a phone call from one of the producers saying, Mike wants to speak to you, which, I mean, blew my socks off, to say the least. So, yeah, that's, that's kind of how it, it all came about, really.
1: Director of Photography, Christopher Ross, shot it. We're talking about Terminal. He lit it really well. The neon lighting with blue tints coming through, it's beautifully crafted with light design, absolutely how did you plan all of that with Christopher Ross Yassini?
0: It really started with a shared love of Blade Runner. If there was a genesis for the way we wanted to construct the cinematography of Terminal, it was it was a love of the boldness and the beauty and the the duality of the lighting in in Blade Runner, and for us, we we knew we wanted to embrace neon and we wanted to embrace kind of those bright uh, bright and bold colors, and it was sort of very important within the story and also in creating the world of Terminal that those neons were very very vivid and bold, and we you know we we often talked about um, you know trying to create the idea of a splash panel in a graphic novel, you know so one of those incredibly arresting vistas that sort of stick in the mind of the of the viewer or the reader and it sort of it, it sort of helps shape the way they see the movie but we also wanted to kind of give it a British flavour um a particular sort of dystopiany British flavour so we used a lot of tungsten we used a lot of sort of drab yellows uh we used a lot of cooler greens as well so we we tried to well, give pretty much all frames that sort of sense of there being almost, a, you know, a, a juxtaposition in terms of the colour palette. You've got these bright, bold, almost cartoonish neons, and then these kind of subsumed, quite eerie, tungsten yellows and greens to sort of contrast that. Um, it's got its roots in noir, <laughs> excuse me, it's got its roots in noir, terminal so you know we wanted to really embrace that embrace light and dark embrace the use of shadow you know try and bring a certain sort of style and 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 sort of a sense of danger and sexiness into 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 the world really to to sort of create that feel that that vibe that terminal had and i mean chris i mean chris is incredible and he's he's such a wonderful a wonderful guy to work with and to collaborate with and he really you know, he he really embraced the, those sort of tropes of terminal and, and gave it gave it a very unique signature.
1: It's definitely got that. It's got its own look for sure. Even a spot, just a single spotlight and the way that he is using a single spot. And I'm thinking in particular of the cafe behind, I think it was Margot, that spot coming in behind her. Very yeah. effective.
0: Which was bizarrely came about as often these things do um, because of, a, of, a, of a, an accident. Um, so, we that was a fan. We sort of had this idea that we would love a fan to be circulating all the time so that we had that sort of. I mean, what a, I'm going to give such a terribly reductive uh, example, but that sort of apocalypse now feel of the you know, the the fan sort of created, you know, the, the silhouette of the fan in front of a light, which gives that really interesting sort of you know light on on the actor's face. But uh, it didn't work on day one, unfortunately. <laughs> there, was a, there was a problem with it. The mechanical housing, uh, they, they just couldn't get it to to work basically. So we sort of ended up with this um, with this spotlight. We thought that's actually that's really stunning you know you've got this very cold kind of bright light that's creating this pool that's sort of surrounded by these you know pinks and and blues and it stayed and became a bit of a signature and there's a scene in that cafe that takes place uh the scene that we sort of you know labeled the betrayal where a sort of devil's deal gets struck well that whole scene was almost lit by that practical which was which was fascinating to watch i mean chris was yeah, what chris did was absolutely brilliant and i I have to say one of the things he did that I'll be forever grateful for was we um we didn't have a huge amount of money on that film but I kept picking huge locations because we were in in Budapest which is a, an amazing amazing place to shoot and has this sort of very these different styles of architecture that rub really strangely against one another the sort of beautiful old buildings of you know the sort of Austro-Hungarian empire that meet this sort of really cold soft block very brutalist architecture, and everywhere I went, I'd be like, "Oh, let's shoot there, let's shoot there." Got mm-hmm. you know, it was it was I couldn't have picked bigger locations to be honest. And Chris came up with this lighting design where he would he would highlight and accent the building mm-hmm. in such a way that it looked beautiful and rich and huge. But he was also able to create these pools of darkness so that we could hide the stuff that we couldn't afford to dress or to or to decorate, which was actually created this kind of Amazing, sort of. I can't really describe it. Kind of an in-between world, but it, it kind of played into this sort of dark fairy tale motif that I really tried to. Well, I really wanted to create, and it, and it was brilliant. It was it was him working with, with what he had, and yeah, I owe him a lot. He did a brilliant, brilliant job.
1: And what was the film shot on? And how many days did it take to shoot?
0: Uh, we shot on. We shot on the Arri. I'm sure we shot on the Arri. Mm. Now I'm doubting myself. Wonder if we shot on the Red. Yeah, I'll, I'll double check for you but I think it was the Ari. Uh and we shot on anamorphic primes um which you know you know they have that kind of luster and that that sort of odds curvature to it that, that I absolutely love uh we shot that in 27 days it was it was very very tight that one.
1: Uh, it's quite demanding uh, for what you've achieved in that film. The sound designer had a clear vision. Talk about the post of this film, because a lot of visual effects are uh, going on in post.
0: Yeah, so the sound designer, Nicola Medici, was amazing, absolutely amazing. He wanted to bring an otherworldliness to it, and he anywhere he could that he could create layers, he could create textures, this idea of this kind of hulking, rusting city that's surrounding us, he... He really went to town. He did. He did a brilliant, brilliant job. We knew we didn't want the visual effects to be photoreal. In inverted commas, like it, it, we wanted it to have a sense of the. I mean, we had references as, as as varied as Blade Runner and Dick Tracy and Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Children of Men. You know, we we sort of knew we wanted to create a weird and sort of unique, idiosyncratic syncratic version of a dystopian city that was reminiscent but not recognisable as London, basically. That was our starting point. And so, the, you know, uh, what, what we did a lot of, to save money, frankly, was we would create these incredible sort of uh, composites. So, so we would, we would shoot uh, night exteriors in Budapest, or we did some in London, And then, um, you'll have to forgive me because I don't know the right VFX terminology. But what we would effectively create was a collage where we would, you know, blend buildings and blend skylines. And then we would accent that with uh, visual effects, full VFX builds where we needed to. And I think that, you know, we really wanted to create that uniqueness.
1: And Simon Pegg seems to be getting better with every film that he does. And there were some great exchanges between Pegg and Robbie in the cafe with plenty of coverage with different angles. Obviously, you work through that sort of coverage to keep it interesting. So talk a little bit about that. And I also would like to pick up on the pacing of the cut in post because this has a real snappy Pacing of cutting with the way that the film is edited.
0: I vividly remember the first day that we shot the cafe. Mark and Simon sat opposite each other, and we did a crew rehearsal. And they did seven and a half pages perfectly. I mean, word perfect. Everyone was watching it like they were watching a play. I mean, it was it was incredible. Like you know, there was a there was a fucking round of applause after the crew rehearsal because they just watched seven minutes of two world class actors turn my dialogue into something good. And, I mean, they had the most amazing chemistry, Simon and Margs, and, and we, we really lent into that. You know, it, they sort of start as awkward strangers, and, and Marx's character befriends uh, Simon's character at, at a sort of very difficult time for him, and they end up falling into this sort of uneasy conversation that sort of lasts three or four hours. And in terms of the way that we covered it, we wanted to make sure it had a sense of sort of classical composition to it. Like, you know, there were lots of, you know, there were lots of shot reverses, you know, both clean and dirty to make sure that we had really nice coverage. But I remember talking to Chris and to Marks and Simon about In the Mood for Love, the One Car Wai film. And that, that's sort of the way that he plays with the angles he uses, the way that he plays with the height of the camera, the way that you can sort of create interest and allure by, you know, by short siding. You know, we used variety of techniques, short siding, you know, moving the actor, you know, sort of within the frame to create unconventional angles we sort of used dutch angles we i wanted to make sure that it it stayed interesting like and i, I do, of course you know amazing actors will make it interesting but it's also it was about for me being able to sort of create that sense of being lost in the story you know of something that was was odd and 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 unconventional once we got into uh, the edit i was blessed to work with two amazing editors in in Johannes Bock and Alex Marquez and it, what, what was so brilliant about their delivery, and I have to say with Dexter and, and Max, um, who sort of you know, formed the, the B side of the, of the Simon and Margot story, they, they had this brilliant sort of uh, rat-a-tat rhythm to the way that they delivered their dialogue, and there was a natural pace that was, that was quick. As naturalistic conversation between two intelligent people tends to be, like you know, there wasn't a lot of pauses for dramatic effect apart from where they were needed. So I think we wanted to really pay homage to that in the way that we cut it, and we wanted it to move along at that at that clip that they themselves had sort of set on set. So you know, we didn't really need to suck too much air out of it in the cut. It, it sort of played at the naturalistic pace that the actors delivered it at.
1: Yeah, it's interesting with the coverage, like, you know, different angles, the Dutch angles that you talk about, boy, it makes a big difference to something like a cafe scene where you've got two actors, you've got so many pages to get through, and it just sort of breaks it up with cutting at different points and different frames.
0: Yeah, it it really does. And and look, I think everything is subservient to story. Everything is in service of the story, right? Mm. But you know, what you can also do within that is the conversation takes these odd twists and turns as they became more companionable with one another, like they moved into these sort of weird and sort of odd, you know, odd pieces of, of conversation, you know, their conversation ranges into sort of, you know, mo- you know, various ways of, of committing suicide, you know, sort of, um, you know, it, it becomes a sort of odd, bizarre, fly-by-night conversation. And it was definitely the, the idea and the intention for myself and for Chris when he was shooting it and the editors was to start in a more classical mode. And then as the conversations sort of took these odd turns and they, they sort of ended up going into these weird and wacky places, then we sort of allowed ourselves to be more flamboyant and expressive with the camera language and, and the way that we sort of told the story.
1: And your latest film is Every Breath You Take, starring Casey Affleck, Michelle Monaghan and Sam Claflin. Uh, Let's bring in your cinematographer into the conversation who shot this film, Michael Merriman. Michael, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. So you guys have collaborated on a couple of films together. The other film was Inheritance. Uh, Michael, how did your paths cross? Um, I was actually very fortunate to start our
2: love affair on that began on Inheritance. I think it occurred due to that film being pushed due to an actor availability, therefore it disabled the crew that was lined up for it. And it took a pause and a producer, uh, an acquaintance of mine, actually connected us. And uh, our magic spawned from there.
1: The relationship between a cinematographer and director, we know, is a critical component to filmmaking. And there is this elevation that can happen to a film when a director and a DP are so in sync with each other. Do you guys have that sort of working relationship now after two films? I believe so. I think
2: that we don't even really have to talk to each other anymore.
0: I'm honoured and very fortunate to have Merriman as as by cinematography. He just brings a, a a wonderful positivity with him, and we really try and sort of create a lovely place to work. And
1: there's no doubt that when that relationship goes into a second and third project together, the aesthetic look of a film, and the the speed of setups and the tone on set all helps with a, I guess, a confidence uh, for a working relationship. How do you typically tend to work? Uh, give us a sense on say blocking to shooting a scene together
2: um you know we actually start in previs once we get our locations finalized then we have a lot of fun of how do we see it happening where we see it happening and how it's going to kind of unravel so at least we have a make a decision on what we would like to do so at least once we get to the location and the actors feel something differently or whatnot then at least we can change our minds but we have a we kind of have a common philosophy together. Um, Vaughn and I do that we can't change our mind until we've made up our mind. So let's make a decision. So therefore we're, we can be open to anything else once, you know, once the magic all starts to kind of get into the room together.
0: Yeah. Having, having that plan, you know, particularly in, in independent film when, you know, time is short and days go quick. Having that plan and having, always having the fallback of, of knowing, knowing inside out what we want to achieve with the scene and being able to work closely with the actors in rehearsal and then in blocking and then, and then shooting to make sure that we can, we can, you know, do the best we can with what we have.
1: And talking about just how tricky set can be, um, you've got some interesting credits, Michael, including working as a camera operator for The Revenant. Now everyone talks about how brutal that film shoot was. What was your takeaway on your experience on that film? It
2: was magical.
1: Yeah, there was a lot of
2: a lot of stress. There was there's you know working in an open environment with those type of conditions prevent. Uh, prevents a lot of things from working correctly. so it's constantly problem solving. And I mean I was fortunate enough to be a lot in a helicopter so I got to be above a lot of those problems a lot of the times. but um, it was definitely that, that crew was amazing and a lot of people came and went just because it would chew up crew and spit it out. So it was uh, it was quite an amazing experience though. So, I mean you can all you have to do is just watch Chivo work and your inspiration is there.
1: And the long rehearsal period. Got to ask about that. Uh, what stands out the most for you, with all of the time that it took to lock in the camera moves and the performance before camera actually turned over on that shoot? Because there was a lot of rehearsing, wasn't there? Every day,
2: they did a good job of prepping what they wanted before they got there. So there definitely was a lot of rehearsing. It definitely took a long time to achieve. You know, they're all perfectionists at their craft. Sometimes greatness takes a while to get achieved. It's like, it has a slow build and evolution and it's subjective to each artist independently. So everyone has their own paintbrush, so to speak. And until it all comes together and only the director sees it, how it's gonna come together. So it's kind of like Fincher in a way where they're perfectionists. They'll shoot 35 takes if they need to. Sometimes what you start, the performances that begin in the scene, by the time you're on the fifth take or 10th take or 15th take, it's a completely different actor a completely different character than what started that scene so it did take a long time to design build and execute that was just the ones that i didn't myself i was fortunate wh- enough to be in a helicopter a lot um to be flying above a
1: lot of that so you were shooting some wides from the helicopter or what were you doing in the helicopter
2: uh, In the helicopter we were fortunate enough we had a long line which is about a 40 to 60 foot static line that you float a stabilized head underneath it and that stabilized c- camera head you fly very in straight lines. You have a very slow movement. It's very similar to the Klosscam system. We also put an array on that helicopter, which was, I think, eight red cameras all lined up to shoot 180 degrees and sweep through canyons with it.
1: So the first film that you did together was Inheritance. Uh, Vaughan, I only watched this last night. The design of the bunker looked like a lot of thought went into it. And I presume that that was a design build on a soundstage or was that something pre-existing?
0: No, it was a, it was a build on a stage.
1: So tell us a little bit about what went into the design and the the look of that bunker and the way that you worked with Michael to get the the lighting all sort of set up the way that you wanted it to to look.
0: We had an idea from the outset that we wanted it to feel reminiscent of a of a sort of nuclear fallout shelter, and I remember talking to Diane Millett, who was the production designer. When we were, you know, sort of in preliminary designs, there were these stories that I'd heard about these sort of reclusive millionaires in upstate New York, who at the height of the Cold War had basically built themselves, uh, you know, underground fallout shelters uh, for them and their family that were, you know, like a sort of suite of underground rooms, and that sort of formed the 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 basis. The that was the spine of the idea. Now we decided not to reference it in the script, but. For us, that sort of played quite a key role. The, it was this idea that it was this sort of self-contained bunker that, you know, that exists on the edge of this sort of dynastical American family's estate. That was sort of the starting point. And then what Merriman and I wanted to do, you know, particularly within the cell, you know, the, the, the place where, where so much of it took place was, was to be able to create a space that was, you know, stylistically interesting, but also kind of, claustrophobic and sort of had that sense of uh, that, that sense of the walls closing in, which, of course, presents its own problems because, you know, we spent a lot of time in that bunker. We wanted to make sure it stayed visually engaging for the audience.
1: And the second film, Every Breath You Take, starring Casey Affleck, uh, Michelle Monaghan and Sam Claflin. I can see your style coming to the fore here, Michael, in terms of the way that you shot it. Uh, you have a... I don't like to say distinctive uh, style, but there's definitely a cross thread that you can see with inheritance coming through with uh, every breath. Oh, wow. Thanks. I'm still trying to figure out what that style is myself.
2: You know, I just try to take a location and, and inspire. I think luckily with every breath you take, you know, we were in this beautiful Northwestern, Pacific Northwest It has more of a Nordic noir um, color palette to it, so I kind of use that for my inspiration in terms of style, lighting, a little softer, like, you know, it's constantly overcast there. You have a lot of movements with clouds, so I tried to embrace that and use that as inspiration um, and how I lit the film and what I embraced in the exterior locations as well.
1: Really, like the psychology room and and the way that that all looked and and felt. and then, when we went to the flashbacks, much more brighter, uh, so quite a contrast, a distinction between you know flashback and uh, for example, in the psychology room, the way that you staged that.
2: Yeah, I think we wanted to go for something that would really
1: stick out a
2: little more distinctly. Um we're trying to give it a little more of a bleach bypass look. So, You know, and also, it's also how you have memories, there's also an emotion that's attached to every memory that you have. And, you know, you wanted to really have a viewer feel that emotion, not being, not necessarily what emotion, not telling them what to feel, but evoke something of their own. Is kind of how the design we were going for.
1: And there was some some nice depth of some of those shots uh, where you could see a bit of depth in the house and out through the window. How important is that for you, uh, looking for depth when you're shooting a scene?
2: I love it. I think depth is where the magic happens. I think foreground is spe- anything in a foreground is special because it really allows the viewer to reach out and it pushes you to try and look deeper. Everything being shot close and wide is beautiful for an emotional scene, but I, I love to kind of give the viewer a landscape to play with and have their own imagination run wild.
1: All right, Michael, well, great to catch up and uh, keep creating that mood lighting of yours. And thanks so much for coming on to Shoot It Now. Thank you so much for having me.
2: Have a beautiful day.
1: Well, Vaughan, it was great adding you to the mix of film directors that was spoken to. Thank you so much for taking your time for speaking to us on Shoot It Now.
0: Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me.
1: You've been listening to
0: Shoot It Now with Craig Newland, your weekly podcast about all things behind the camera and in front of it. Until next time, have a great week.